Yeah, uh, good to see everybody. Greetings, y'all. This is this is one of the features of Zoom. Is is at three o'clock, nobody's there, and at two minutes after three, everybody is. So good to see you all. I'm glad you're here. And uh, actually, I've enjoyed in both classes kind of chatting with people just as we get started. And it's nice to have that kind of thing. Um, so uh, good to see you all. Michael, you look like you're enjoying a little outdoors as we speak, huh? Yeah, I try to come here to a coffee shop to work in the afternoon, but they uh, their internet's down, so it's been an interesting afternoon. But 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 the weather is too good to uh, not work here, so I've been finding ways to work on my phone and do things offline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great to be outside these days. I am thrilled to get there myself. So good, uh, good to see you all. Um, we will go ahead and jump in. Um, let me pray as we uh, do that. Father, thank you for these friends, and I do pray that you would bless them in this study, uh, that together we would have eyes that are open, um, and that we would see um, this word, that we would read it uh, for the first time again, um, and just have ever more uh, wonder at what we read here. Um, help us, please, to... To, to be granted understanding, to have some further realization of just how extraordinary it is that there is this incarnation and all that follows from that. Um, we do thank you. We look to you in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if, if any of you is not muted, you might want to do that. Um, I'm not sure where it feels like we're getting a little feedback somewhere um amanda are you muted no i'm not let me mute okay um we had this trouble this more or the, today in mike's class too and then it was somebody's speaker that i think was kind of creating the feedback but i think i think we're good uh again good to see you all um today what i want to do is look at these passages in all four gospels where jesus does in fact enter jerusalem for what is known as the triumphal entry and what appears to be the beginning of the final week of his life there in Jerusalem. Um, as we do it, because there's so much Old Testament that we're going to be referencing in this section, I do want to start by just reading portions of Psalm 118. Uh, this is a psalm that all four Gospels will, will quote, and they will quote it more than once, um, but you'll recognize some of the lines probably. I won't read the whole thing, but Psalm 118 um, a psalm of thanksgiving for the Lord's saving goodness. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is from everlasting. Let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is from everlasting. Let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is from everlasting. Uh, down on verse 14, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Salvation, then, is one of the themes of this psalm. And in verse 19, uh, to the end, we have this, open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me. And thou hast become my salvation. 
the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, (coughs) excuse me, O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. And the term there for do save is Hosanna. O Lord, Hosanna, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Um, We could linger for a long time just over that psalm, but I want to just have it there at least as a background for um, looking then at the passages we'll be looking at in the Gospels this morning. And um, what I want to do is um, look at Mark and then Matthew, and what we will see there is what we've seen previously in this class, particularly in the fall semester, which is that Matthew and Mark give the same events in different order. And so we kind of end up with this problem of wondering just how to read this. What are these two writers up to in doing that? And then what we've done is go to the Gospel of Luke to see if Luke can help us at all. Um, And then that usually takes us back to the Gospel of Matthew uh, to try to figure out just what Matthew's up to. My proposal in the first half of this class is that what Matthew is doing is organizing the material in his gospel around his argument. And the argument is that Jesus is the Christ. Now, all four gospels argue that Jesus is the Christ, but they organize the material differently and have slightly different agendas or perspectives in presenting the material, sort of different editorial policies, if you will. Luke makes it clear in the introduction to his gospel that he wants to give the events in a chronological order. Um, he's going to write as a sort of a historian would, um, to the extent that any of these four writers is a historian per se. Um, but in doing that, while he's going to give us a chronological account for the most part, he's also going to make references along the way that, to things like at that time or in those days or end at the same time, where he's not being strictly or, or woodenly chronological, but he's still basically giving us the flow of the narrative as it unfolded. Um, I would argue that Mark is giving us the terse, quick account that is largely told from the perspective of being one of Jesus's disciples. We don't have any of the birth narrative in Mark. We don't have much prologue or introduction at all. We have very little reference to John the Baptist. And by verse 14 or 15, we have Jesus's public ministry. He's calling disciples and they are walking with him. I would say that that framework stays intact pretty consistently throughout the entire gospel. We've seen that there are only a couple of uh, things in Mark that don't appear in any other gospel. And I would say in each case, they particularly have the, the disciples in view and particularly have their process of learning and growth in view. Right through the very final verse or two of the chapter 16, as we probably have it in its truncated, brief, jarring ending form, um, the, the question of discipleship is the question. And, and I would say it, it, 
it comes right over to the reader that at the end of the gospel, it's asking you as a reader what you will do as a disciple or would be a disciple of Jesus. Then when you go to Matthew, I think what we've got is the gospel that is that is aimed at and, and particularly written for Matthew's fellow uh, Jews. Um, it is rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. It is the first of the four gospels always when we have collections of the four gospels. It's kind of the hinge between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament writings um, between the Old Testament and the New. And that Matthew then ordered the material around his argument that Jesus is the Christ. And he developed themes such as Jesus's kingship and the nature of the kingdom or Jesus's authority as the Christ. So that when he gives us a summary sermon in the opening chapters of five to seven, um, the concluding comment at, at the end of that sermon is that people were amazed at the authority of Jesus's teaching. And then you go into the miracles in chapters eight and nine. And I would argue they're ordered from the least to the greatest from Jesus healing fairly mundane illnesses to lifelong illnesses to dealing with the forces of nature like wind and waves to dealing with demons to dealing with sin and to dealing with death itself. Matthew tells those events in that order because he's going from least to greatest. And, and I think that kind of framing of the, of the narrative holds true for Matthew throughout the whole gospel. Now, when we were in the chapters from 17 to 20 here in the last couple of weeks, I didn't make much of this. And I don't know that there's a lot to be made of it in those chapters, honestly. Um, that's where we saw both Matthew and Mark giving us the shorter account to get Jesus into Jerusalem, Luke giving us the longer account. But I think as we come back here now to Matthew 21 and to this narrative about the triumphal entry, I I, I would say that the same kind of distinctives start to show themselves again. Um, that in Mark, we have the disciples' experience. Um, in Luke, we have some wonderful additional material. And in Matthew, we have the unfolding story of Jesus as Messiah, of his authority, of controversy and increased tension between Jesus and the temple authorities, and ultimately um, a kind of a contest that ends in them taking Jesus and executing him, but also in coming into that, there is this word of judgment from Jesus um, on those who should be the eyes of the people and should be welcoming Jesus as the Messiah and are, in fact, opposing him uh, at, at, at a return. So um, as we look at it, then what I'd like to do is start with the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you can open up to Mark and you should have a Bible, definitely have a Bible in front of you on this. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, Mark chapter 11 is where we have the entry into Jerusalem. Mark 11, 1, they approach Jerusalem. They're coming up from the Jericho, on the Jericho road and the last stops on that road before entering Jerusalem are Bethany and Bethphage. Um, this is where we are told the little account of him sending two disciples to go pick up this cult who belongs to some kind of a friend. Um, and follower of Jesus. They bring the cult to Jesus. They put their garments on it. He sits on it. People are there. They're kind of thronging. They're welcoming him. Um, verse nine, those who go before and those who follow are crying out, Hosanna. As I say, that's, oh, save, um, 
or salvation. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So that's the Psalm 118 uh, passage that we just read from. Mark then portrays Jesus going into Jerusalem, coming into the temple, looking around, but then departing for Bethany because it was already late. The next day, then, they're coming back into the town. He sees the fig tree. And even though it's not the season for figs, as Mark says at the end of verse 13, Jesus looks and whether there are no buds or anything, it's hard to say. But there is this strange moment where Jesus curses the fig tree sort of judges it, and the next day, as we will see, it withers and dies. Um, I, I do think the, the only way to understand this is the sim- symbolism of the fig tree as is Israel, um, that, that that's what's happening there, and that's why you have this strange moment of of the judgment of Jesus on this tree. They then come into Jerusalem on that second day, the, the next day after the entry, they enter the temple and they cast out those who are buying and selling, overturning the tables of the money changers, etc. He would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple and says to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Um, then in Mark, in, church, in verse 20 and following, we get the account of the fig tree withering. Jesus turns that into an occasion to teach the disciples, um, and, uh, and, and encourage them to pray believing. Then in verse 27, they come again to Jerusalem and there is this discussion of his authority. Um, we'll do just that much for now and then turn over to Matthew chapter 21. And we'll see initially a very similar account. They come to Bethphage by the Mount of Olives. And as they are about to go in, Jesus has them go get the dunk, the colt. Now, Matthew does add in verse five, an additional quotation in fulfillment of the scriptures of Zechariah. Verse five, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden then in verse 9 you get everyone crying out hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest verse 10 he enters jerusalem the whole city is stirred saying who is this it's an interesting picture we know from john's gospel that there are a bunch of people who are excited because of what's happened in Bethany with the raising of Lazarus and then the dinner in Bethany on the eve of coming into Jerusalem. Uh, the crowds are forming. They seem to be accompanying him as he comes down from Bethany and Bethphage off the Mount of Olives and into the city. The, the crowds seem to already be kind of swarming. And then somewhere in there, he makes this arrangement to get the, the colt of the donkey. They bring it to him and he chooses to ride in on that colt instead of walking in on foot um, or coming in in any other way. It, it, it is an interesting picture here. Um, and the Zechariah passage points to it. Um, how should Jesus enter Jerusalem at this point? He, he is, on the one hand, a pilgrim. As, as many people in the city would be at this time coming for the feast of the Passover. 
And as, as you come as a pilgrim, you, you walk and you walk into the city. Um, he doesn't come as just a pilgrim, but he also doesn't come mounted on a powerful horse or with troops with him as if he were some kind of conquering king. But he does come in on this young colt. And the picture here is that this is an animal that has never served um, as a beast of burden or labor. It is kind of in its in its youth and um and, and sort of innocence almost. And so he rides in on this, and it's that picture of Zechariah that that it that it speaks of kind of royalty or high standing, but it's but it's the picture of a king who comes as a prince of peace, more than a pilgrim but not in sort of military conquest either. It's a very distinctive kind of reign that, that he brings in um, as he rides in on this animal. And for what is just about the first time in all these gospel accounts we've been looking at, instead of saying to the people, no, 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 don't be saying this about me, he goes ahead and lets them say these things. He lets them go ahead and, and, and refer to Psalm 118 as this kind of messianic picture of our king who comes in the name of the Lord. So, so it's, it's, it's obviously really significant. And we'll see that in John's gospel, particularly, um, where he is, he is now not silencing the crowd, but actually affirming them, um, as, as they proclaim him to be the one who comes in the name of the Lord the one who brings Hosanna, who brings, who brings salvation. Um, what we then have in Matthew is that um, Matthew says that Jesus entered the temple in verse 12, cast out all those who were buying and selling, um, says that my house shall be called a house of prayer. And then um, he leaves in verse 17, goes out to the city of Bethany. And in the morning he comes in, He's hungry, sees the fig tree, and there's where you get the um, the fig tree story. Um, and at once, he says at the end of verse 19, the fig tree withered. Jesus once again here teaches his disciples that this is an example of prayer and that they should pray believing. Um, so we've got one more little example of Matthew giving us a different order than Mark. It would be nice to be able to go to Luke and see if we've got the answer. Interestingly, in this case, in Luke 12, we don't really have a clear answer. Um, in Luke, I'm sorry, Luke 19, um, Luke 19, verse 28, um, he's ascending to Jerusalem. Verse 29, we get the story of him sending for the cult. Uh, verse 38, Luke's version of the people's shouting includes this this line blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest now understand you've got a bunch of people praising jesus excited about him they're all pulling psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 in and it comes out in various ways but the significance uh, that the one who comes in the name of the Lord is understood to be the king, is understood to be the son of David, comes out in Luke's telling. Um, the Pharisees say to him in verse 39, uh, rebuke your disciples. They understand what's being said about him. 
and that this should be understood to be blasphemy. There's no way anybody should be saying these things about somebody if, in fact, those things are not actually true. Pharisees are convinced these things are not true about Jesus, and therefore says, Jesus, you, you should shut these people up. This is blasphemy. They shouldn't be saying this. Jesus responds by saying, if they were to get quiet right now, the stones themselves would cry out. It may be an allusion to Habakkuk, that image is in Habakkuk. Um, it doesn't mean that it has to come directly from there, but but it's part of Jesus's stockpile of images, certainly, um, as someone who knew those Hebrew scriptures as well as he did. And so his, his response is that the stones themselves would cry out. We then have the picture in Luke in verse 41 of Jesus weeping over the city. Um, this is a this is unique to Luke as far as this particular account of him weeping and of him foreshadowing the destruction of the city and temple that's good that's coming within decades um there is a similar lament in matthew um that we found actually earlier in luke it's one of those word for word the same pieces that we've talked about um but this one is is a different one it would seem and unique to luke at least um the that wording that particular lament and at this point then Luke just says in verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to pass out, cast out those who were selling. He doesn't say exactly when it happened in the week, but just that it happened. Um, and in verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. So this is what I mean. He's a good, you know, kind of historian. There are some places where he's going to give things in a more strict order. In other places, he's going to say, and then this week, this was happening and this was happening. And he was doing that. Uh, verse verse one of chapter 20 is the same kind of reference. It came about on one of those days while he was teaching in the temple. And then he gives a, an episode there. So Luke doesn't quite clarify for us, but it still sends us back to Matthew. And that's where I want to go again and look at Matthew's account a little bit more closely then and see if we can tell what Matthew is up to. And at that point, I'd encourage you to get that handout out that I sent you this morning. Um, it's the triumphal entry where we're comparing Matthew with the other Gospels with particular emphasis on the use of the Old Testament passages that we have in these accounts, but then showing um, how Matthew develops this section and emphasizing some of the things that are unique to Matthew um, and, and where those items that are unique to Matthew also lend all the more intensity to what is, in fact, shared by the Gospels. All the Gospels would see this as a period of increased tension, of um, danger for Jesus, of judgment on those who who reject him, and a continuing invitation to all those who will believe. But look at Matthew then. As I mentioned, um, one of the, well, I'm not sure I did mention this, one of the features of, of Matthew's argument then um, in keeping with his desire to address his own uh, Jewish brothers and sisters, is that he draws on the Old Testament over and over and over. We saw it in the opening chapters. We've seen it here and there along the way. This is another place where um, Matthew um, is drawing on the Hebrew Bible repeatedly. He's not the only one to do it, but he is doing it more than any of the other gospel writers. So we have the reference to Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Um, it's, it's always worth looking up these passages when you come across them. 
typically these are kind of um, almost like pointers uh, given to people who would know their prophetic scriptures well and and would have some sense for what's going on in Zechariah's prophecy and even immediately around this specific line here from chapter 9 verse 9 as we know it Um, but let me read you just a couple of verses there from Zechariah Um, it says rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout in triumph O daughter of Zion behold your king is coming to you he is just and endowed with salvation humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then there are some phrases that talk about judgment, but also about the ending of warfare, cutting off the chariot and the horse, um, cutting off the bow of war. And then it continues, and he, your king, will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the end of the earth. All of that is in view for Matthew when he quotes a portion of it and locates it right here um, as as a scripture that is being fulfilled as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Matthew's uh, next then is the Hosanna passage from Psalm 118. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, at that point, Matthew inserts the cleansing of the temple and sort of gives it a sense of immediacy. And I think what he's doing is is foregrounding it, highlighting it, bring it right up front and center. And there is an issue here of judgment, of a question of what has happened to the temple and temple worship and how um, cluttered and corrupted it's, it's become. And Jesus addresses it. And there's a sense of immediacy about it and priority about it that Matthew wants to emphasize. It is then interesting. I didn't highlight this when I was just glancing at Matthew a minute ago, but in verse 20, uh, verse 14 of chapter 21, Matthew includes, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I won't turn to the Isaiah passages again, but in Isaiah, um, 29 and 35, particularly, and there's a couple other references in that whole section. Um, there is a, there is a picture of the coming day of the Lord. And one of the ways that that day will be recognized is that, is that this Lord, the Lord himself who comes will give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf and, and healing to the lame. Um, so when, when we have some of these miracles tucked in at certain points, they aren't just to show Jesus's compassion. They are to do that or Jesus's power. They are to do that. Um, but, but they are, they're also meant to show fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, just like so much else is meant to do. And, and for Matthew to include this at this point, just quickly, but it's there. It, it shouldn't be missed. Um, and unfortunately those lines in Isaiah, um, 28 to 35, are often missed. We get the book of Emmanuel in chapters 6 to 11, or 6 to 12, I guess it is, in the beginning of Isaiah, stories about the birth for the most part. 
um, we get the imagery of John the Baptist in chapter 40. We get the development of the suffering servant in chapters 40s through 50s. Um, but we, we easily miss this section, I think, in 28 to 35. And I think that's being brought into view here um, by Matthew in that simple reference that the blind and the lame were being healed at the site of the temple by Jesus. Another thing that's unique to Matthew is the, is what follows then in verse 16. Um, starting with verse 15, we read that when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Once again, why are they indignant? Because these children are ascribing to Jesus a role that they're drawing from Psalm 118, because their parents and others have taught them, this is, this is what this is about. So they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The priests become indignant and say to him, do you hear what these kids are saying? As if to say, are you not going to stop this? And Jesus's response is to quote another bit of the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 8. Jesus says to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Now, as we just said with regard to Zechariah a minute ago, these little references always have more to them than is immediately apparent. And this is another really good example. You may recall Psalm 8 is another one of those psalms that would pretty well recognize as having some messianic uh uh, implications. It's the one that refers to what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that you take any, pay any attention to him. You have made him slightly lower than the gods or than the angels. And, and that is taken in the New Testament as a reference to Jesus as the son of man. So it's got that kind of imagery in it. But at the beginning of that psalm, we have the line about from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength um, or uh, um, have established a, a, a fortress kind of a, a dwelling place. Um, that's what Jesus quotes. The next line is you saying to the Lord, you have established this dwelling place in the praises of the little children in order because of your adversaries in order to make the enemy and the revengeful cease, in order to shut up the enemy. So so Jesus is saying to these temple authorities, you know, well, this is what Psalm 8 is talking about. The children declare the praise of God and rightly attribute to me this, this, this line of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and it is an example of God using the little children to shut up the enemies of God. Um, no, no question here. We've got some significant tension and it's building and building and for good reason. I mean, the, the conflict between Jesus and these temple authorities is very clear. They are, they are committed to, to executing him at this point. They, they, they've got to get rid of him. Um, previously, you know, as long as he would just, if he floated into Jerusalem for a little while and then got out of there again, it's kind of like, okay, maybe he's gone enough now, but, but it's just come to a head where they, where they, they are convinced they have to silence him. Um, but it's interesting that at this moment, the, the praise of the children, Hosanna to the son of David, 
um, is actually silencing um, the enemies of God. Um, so that's additional in Matthew as well. We then have the fig tree. And as Matthew tells it, there is, again, a kind of a decisiveness to it. In Mark's telling, it's an overnight process. He, he judges the fig tree one day, and the next day as they're coming in, they notice that the fig tree is withered. Um, it then becomes more of a teaching episode in Mark that concludes with Jesus t- teaching his disciples to seek forgiveness and offer forgiveness in prayer. That if you're going to come to God with faith, come to God in humility, seeking forgiveness and forgiving your enemies. That's in Mark, and it's interesting that you've got more of that disciples learning kind of a picture. Here, it is also a lesson in prayer, um, but it's a much more decisive judgment and wilting all, all just lumped together. The question of authority then appears, and it appears in Matthew and in the other Gospels. So it's not unique to Matthew, but you can see that much of what Matthew is adding is sort of dealing with this question of authority and who Jesus is, and then seeing this tension build around that question. Matthew then adds the parable of the two sons, one of whom says that he will obey and then shirks his duty and doesn't. The other one says he doesn't want to have to be told what to do, but then he repents and he does do what he had been asked to do. Another picture of Jesus coming for those who are sick and know they're sick and need help. Then the parable of the vineyard, which is common to all three, uh, concluding with the comment about the chief cornerstone, which is one of the verses from Psalm 118. And then another parable that is unique to Matthew. It is the parable of the wedding feast and of the picture of those who were invited, um, refusing to come, and then going out and finding those who are willing to come. There is a a parable like that in Luke, but it's enough different that it seems pretty clear. It's the kind of thing Jesus would, for one thing, have said more than once. But this one is, um, I think, distinct from from what we've got in Luke. And then what we do have in Matthew is the, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you um, in, in Matthew. It's the one we find in Luke much earlier, back in chapter 13. And then, interestingly, at the end of chapter 20, I'm sorry, um, I, I missed something there. Um, it's the woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. Very significant piece of this. It's most of chapter 23, where Jesus goes into the woes on the scribes and the Pharisees, these judgments about their hypocrisy that are scathing. Um, and again, no surprise that, that we are at a point where they're just ready to, to silence him. Um, Luke gives us a similar kind of a picture much earlier in the process. Um, Matthew places it right here on the eve of Christ's um, death um, and then concludes that whole section with the with the verse that it begins with, more or less. Um, chapter 23, verse 39, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's, it's interesting that Matthew kind of wraps this whole section up and, the, and, and bookends it in the Psalm 118 reference. So we have it back in Psalm, in, in chapter 21, verse nine, in the triumphal entry itself. And now at the end of chapter 23, again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And from there, we go into Jesus's temple discourse um, about the coming day of judgment and then right into the final night um, as well. So it, it sort of creates a unit, as it were, I think, 
from the entry of Jerusalem through this heightening of tension and heightening of judgment um, uh, that takes us through the end of chapter 23 in Matthew's gospel. Um, I've been sort of rattling along here, but trying to suggest that that it's it's interesting to see how Matthew develops his argument and how he fills it out and particularly to note some of these things that are distinctive to his telling um, in these three chapters we've just been looking at. But let me pause and just sort of say, what what questions does that raise for you? Um, what are your thoughts that it provokes? I'd be interested in knowing what you think. Something that stood out to me that I never thought about before is that the the young people, the children, you know, they, they, they recognize Jesus's position and who, you know, his identity as Christ, because they, they like have been taught scriptures growing up and they're recognizing, or you said something to, if I, maybe I misunderstood, but their parents and their community has taught them, you know, these, these passages of, of the Jewish sacred texts of the, of the old Testament. And they've, see it happening in front of them it's obviously curing it's a miracle and it's just what scripture kind of predicted I never really thought of it that way and it made me think of um yeah it just made me think of like I I feel like every um young generation I used to feel like I was part of the youngest generation but now I see another generation kind of coming up and it's so interesting that the young people always have this kind of clarity about right and wrong and what's kind of obvious and and a lot of times they end up challenging the older generation I kind of see that almost happening in this passage but I when you said that it really kind of mm-hmm. caught me because I had never thought of it that way yeah it's interesting you, you, I always wonder what Jesus just exactly what Jesus has in mind when when he says to enter the kingdom you have to become like a little child um and, and I think it's got multiple dimensions, but it's really fascinating. And, and honestly, if you want something to think about for a while, um, take that one and think about it. But there is a kind of a clarity in young children often. I've got grandchildren now, and my oldest is, is six years old. And even in, the, in these last week, there have been interesting stories of a kind of clarity of revision. Um, and can it be called naive or innocent or something? Well, maybe, but I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Uh, so, so, you know, we get older and mature and we complicate things and we trouble things and we learn how not to believe. We, we, we absorb the cultural logic of disbelief. Um, and, and it's an undoing of something that has a kind of an, a, a clarity a vision that i think little children can have and the other part of something like this that's so hard for us to get to know with our i mean this was hard to hard to think about 40 years ago or even 20 but my word now that you all live in under the curse of google i and alexa and siri and whoever the people are um at any rate you know, these children did not have, um, not only did they not have digital devices, of course, they, they didn't have, they didn't have a copy of the Bible on their shelf at home. Um, the, the, the memorization, the absorption, um, is remarkable and, and, and very 
common in most cultures until we until we invented technologies that that unlearned that that potential um and it's a it's a sad loss we think we think that being able to google it quote unquote is nothing but a good thing well it's come at tremendous cost um it really has and these children would have had you know I mean, when David says, I hide, I hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He's absolutely serious about it. David, David could have quoted a lot of the Psalms that he had written (laughs) Uh, and others um, around him. Yeah, I'll, I'll get off that soapbox, but man, I feel like I got in on some of the end of this as a little child, uh, memorizing, um, yeah, and and I don't know what you all are trying to do about pushing back against aspects of your culture that that come actually at a great cost. But um, the life of simplicity um, that includes reading and absorbing and focus and attention um, these are disciplines well worth pursuing for all of us. I'd encourage you in them. And, and my impression is that, that Psalm 118 was one of those passages. That, that it was one of those passages of worship, of festival, um, uh, anticipation. And it, and it comes just before the Psalms of Ascent, but I think it's often considered one. It's a, it's a, it's part of the Hallel corpus, the Hallelujah Psalms, the uh, praise to you, Lord, is the Hallel. Hallelujah, praise to you, Lord. Um, and so these would have been psalms that would have been would have been known. Certainly, my impression. Yeah. Any any other thoughts or questions on on that much? I do want yeah. to just yeah. Go ahead. I was wondering if you have. I'm sure you've probably said something about this before, but how long after was Luke writing his gospel after he would have been, after Jesus would have been, um, ascended. He was writing this working off of Mark and Matthew, but I don't know how long after. And cause he has that extra detail in here about weeping, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem that the others don't have. And so I'm wondering if, part of Luke's gospel is that he has enough time after these gospels to have heard other accounts from people about Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And I, and I think Luke would have multiple um, sources, um, oral ones, as well as some written ones. I think I've argued that he would have, when he says at the beginning, others have undertaken to write about these things. I, I'm inclined to think that we've at least got Mark and Matthew in view, but I think we've got more than that. And, and while I don't follow the, the theories about a Q document, um, in the ways that some scholars do as, as far as their implications, I do think it's perfectly reasonable to think that Matthew and Luke were working off some shared sources. And that's why they have some of these small pieces. 
that are word to word, word for word the same or very close to that, but they have them at different points in their gospels. And I think, again, that's because of the two different editorial policies that the two writers had. Um, so I think there's at least that kind of a third document, but I think also you're, you're going to have other sources. And then you've got, you've got this situation where Luke, um, will, will end up, um, with personal associations to, um, uh, apostles and others who would have been contemporaries of Jesus, even though he does not seem to have been a part of any of this himself. And then he's got the connection particularly to the Apostle Paul. And then you've got interesting questions about how the Apostle Paul in his writings would be working off of um, his knowledge of Jesus as given to him through various sources. Um, and then you've got things like, I think it's the second Timothy epistle, where there is a reference to the manuscripts. Um, Paul asked, bring the manuscripts that you've got. And we all go, ooh, ooh, what were those? What manuscripts um, would they have been talking about? But they're talking about something. Um, and, and so you've just got really interesting questions, most of which don't have answers, uh, at least not with any real clarity. Um, but just interesting lines of research and knowledge of Jesus in his own time. Yeah. And I have no idea whether I answered a question or not in, in what I was just rambling about, but yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, let's just take uh, just a couple of minutes, which is all we've got um, to, to look at John um And, and just see the, this, this very briefly, this additional piece that John brings to it. Look at John chapter 12. Um, and, and it's worth sort of laying this alongside the, the other three gospels. Verse 12 of chapter 12. We're coming out of Bethany. Um, people are excited. Crowds are starting to form. They're walking with Jesus. Um, verse 12, the next day. Um, the multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him. It would seem that those people are coming out. Meanwhile, there are other people with him coming in from Bethany. Somewhere in there, he arranges for the, the donkey. Um, and then we get the picture of the Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. John includes the, the specific reference to king, just as Luke does. Um, Jesus finds this young donkey, John puts in there, um, sits on it, and then he cites this, uh, uh, Zach, um, uh, the Zechariah, um, passage as well, just very briefly. He says that people still didn't really understand what was going on. Um, so, so it's interesting that there is this kind of, um, attestation of Jesus by quoting the scriptures and yet, you know, who really knew what Psalm 118 meant anyway? It's kind of like, it, it's, it's, but we think, we think it applies here and, and it did apply here. Um, there was some place in here where it's clear again that Jesus affirms what's being said about him and, and welcomes it. Um, it, it was clear there, uh, in the reference, I think it is in Luke that the stones would cry out if the people didn't. And in Matthew that the children are in fact saying the right thing. Um, and now what's distinctive in John 
is in verse 20, it reads, Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip came to Andrew. Andrew and Philip came to Jesus and said, um, that told him about this. Jesus answers and says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And skipping down to verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And as you go on down through the end of that chapter, you'll see Jesus particularly identifying himself with the Father. Verse 44, for instance, Jesus cries out, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Uh, he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. And then the other theme he develops here is that of light. I've come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. Verse 27, my soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Mm, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Here again is, a, is an instance of Jesus saying something he has not said before. There have been several times when he has said, my hour has not yet come. Even thinking of the wedding feast back in John 2, he says to his mother, my, my hour has not yet come. He'll say that on other occasions. Now, he says, my hour has come. This is a critical moment. And, and he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Well, this is what I came for. Um, and yet, of course, a few days later in the garden, he will say exactly that. Father, can there, is there any way you can save me from this? Is there any way? And then he will answer the question once again. No, um, this is what I've come for. And he continues to finish what he came to do. His reference to himself as light is also always worth noting that this is the contrast with the, um, the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels want you to find the light within yourself. Jesus wants you to find the light that is within him um, and that he can provide for those of us who walk in darkness. So John does add this rich element. Um, and the other part that's being added here by John, who's coming well after the others, after the fall of Jerusalem. Um, now a Christian church is established and it's got certainly Jewish members, but it's also got Gentile or Greek members. And, and that Greek world has now been opened up and the gospel is penetrating it and people are coming to Jesus from outside and out in the world. It is interesting to notice that in that Zechariah passage that I read, there are two themes there. One is the nations that are going to be brought in to the reign of this king of peace. And the other one is the theme of light uh, that that prince of peace brings. Um, so John is developing both of those themes from that passage. And it's interesting that he does very briefly cite that Zechariah passage himself um, in his telling of this narrative as well. Um, we're late as always, so we need to stop. Again, if anybody wants to stick around and chat, we can do that. Um, I do want to say 
I'm, I'm going to make a little change. Um, next week, I do want to move on to the final night um, for Jesus. We will look briefly at those discourses at the temple. Um, I'll just go ahead and confess. I wish I had some profound insight on how to read those passages and that I had figured out just what's going on there. I haven't. Um, I'll be glad to struggle with them a bit with you all. Uh, we'll spend some time there, but then I do want to push on into the final night and then pick up honestly from the Psalm 118 passages and see how not just Old Testament scriptures, but Old Testament theology frames what's going on in that Passover meal and in Jesus is going on to his death um, the next day. So do take time and take thoughtful time, prayerful time over those passages. Um, you can start with Matthew 24. Be sure to get to Matthew 26. Um, you can start with um, Mark uh, 13, 12, well, I guess 12, somewhere in chapter 12 and on through 13. Um, and then Luke, I forget off the top of my head just which chapters you want to be in, but you can find the, the, the assignment. And it's the assignment for two weeks from today. Whatever those passages are in the syllabus, uh, those would work well. Okay. Thank you all.